podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to OCD, anxiety, anxiety spectrum disorders, and getting your life back. I'm your host, Kevin Foss. I'm a licensed clinician specializing in OCD and anxiety disorders. Thank you all so much for joining me for uh, this episode. This is going to be a, a fun one, a different one, a new one, uh, something that we haven't talked about before. So that's exciting. So for those of you who are new, this is typically a question and answer based podcast. You can go over and uh, go over to fearcastpodcast.com and you can click on the submit a question link and you can send me your questions about anxiety and OCD and, and how to get over it, what treatment looks like and how to help a family member and anything related to that, that is what this podcast is all about. So um, uh, you can go over to Fearcast Podcast. You can also go over to Instagram. I'm Fearcast Podcast over there. I have some instructions on my, my Instagram page on how to do it, but Y'all know how to use Instagram. Send me a DM, click on the little microphone, record your voice. Um, and uh, oh, this is a separate conversation, I suppose. You can send me a text question at fearcastpodcast.com, but audio questions get shot boom, to the top of the list and bypasses the wait list of questions that I have. And thank you so much, everybody, for sending me questions. As I've said before, the more questions this podcast has, the longer it's going to go. Um, and uh, what's, what I find most interesting, and it's been confirmed by a number of people I've talked to, having your voice is the most interesting. Y'all know what my voice sounds like. But if you send me an audio question like over at Instagram, or you can record it onto your phone and email it to me at questions at fearcastpodcast.com, or you can send me, this is probably the safest and best way, uh, upload it to like Google Drive and send me the, the link to that drive or share it with me, uh, share the link to uh, fearcastpodcast.com, and I will put it up on a future episode in the next recording. So. That is typically what this podcast is about, but this uh, uh, this episode we're going to be talking about ARFID, which is Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder. It's something that we haven't really talked about and, um, and, and doesn't come up as much in podcasts like this, but is certainly something that falls in line with the, the anxiety and OCD spectrum, so that's why we want to talk about it today. Before I get into that, um, if you like the podcast, if you enjoy the podcast, it would mean a great great deal to me if you were to go over to uh, iTunes or wherever else that you get your uh, podcasts and write a review, put a, you know, give it five stars or whatever you feel is, uh, is applicable. Um, all it does is it helps other people find the podcast as you found the podcast and hopefully it can help other people. Um, you know, I do know real advertising for this, telling other people about it, tell a group, tell a therapist, uh, gets the word out, gets more questions, keeps this podcast rolling. So, um, that I think is all I have to say about that. Well, why don't I get into just the, um, uh, my introduction about, uh, Dr. Megan Fay, who is the person I interviewed, um, about this, and then we'll get into the interview. So Dr. Megan Fay is a licensed psychologist specializing in the evidence-based treatment of obsessive compulsive disorder, anxiety, and eating disorders at the Anxiety Specialists of Atlanta. Dr. Fay is the creator of the YouTube series, Learning About Your ARFID, and the forthcoming series, Learning About Your Misophonia. So, without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Megan Fay. All right, Dr. Megan Fay, thank you so much for joining us today on the Fearcast to talk about um, ARFID. 
Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. This is very exciting. So we um, we're going to see how technology goes. For those of you who are who can't hear what I just cut out of the podcast, uh, we've had some technical issues. So we're going to see how it goes on both of our ends. My computer is doing weird stuff too. So ah, okay. <laughs> it's going to be an exciting game. But um, Dr. Faye joined me today to talk about um, her her expertise, her interest in RFID. And it's something that isn't normally talked about. Um, there's, there's not a ton of information out there, at least a ton of good information out there on RFID, what it is, what it is not. And uh, I'm delighted to have you on to uh, educate all of us and to perhaps dispel some misconceptions about what it is and... Um, and to talk about how it's treated. Absolutely, yeah. RFID is very much in its infancy of treatment and research. It's only been in the front of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is our our manual for diagnosing mental health disorders in the United States. It's only been there since the most recent iteration, the DSM-5. Prior to 2013, it was considered more of an infancy feeding disorder. So it's still just getting some recognition and some understanding of how it presents and how you treat it. So hopefully I can provide a little bit of a background and a baseline for how to get started, what it might look like, but also that that's subject to change as more research is done, which is hopefully on the horizon. Right, right. Well, why don't we start off with um, just what what is it? So RFID, which stands for Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder, is technically an eating disorder. And I know we're here on an obsessive compulsive disorder and anxiety disorder focused podcast, but a lot of really great treatment for RFID is in that domain. And we'll talk about a little bit why that is. Um, But it's an eating disorder because the primary symptoms are on issues with eating and food. But it differs from other eating disorders in that it is not about trying to control weight or body image, but it is very much about food itself. So people with ARFID typically fall into one of three categories where they have a lot of issues eating that can lead to nutritional deficiencies. Um, It can lead to difficulties making expected weight gains or having health issues. Um, But it can also have significant psychosocial impairment, which means there can be a lot of difficulties eating across settings, being able to do things like go on dates or go to sleepovers as kids. Um, But the three categories that people tend to fall into are a little bit different. One is a lack of interest in eating and food altogether. And sometimes people in that category have trouble getting themselves to eat. They have low appetite. Um, They're fatigued by it. They don't find food to taste very good. Then there's a second category, which tends to represent most of the people that I see. Um, And it's more of a sensory aversion to food. Um, And that can start to look a little bit similar to OCD. Um, So there's a little bit of sensory processing elements where people might be disgusted by food. It's not necessarily an anxiety around food, but there's an actual strong disgust reaction to certain foods, certain textures. Sometimes it can be based on temperature or color or whether there are edges to the food, whether they have the specific brand. So that's when we're starting to get into particularities that look a little more subjective um, rather than just that 
relaxed feeling. Um, but you'll see people resisting the urge to have their foods touch each other or eating chicken nuggets from one fast food place when they could get them from their favorite fast food place. So it starts to get very particular. So that's the second category. And then the third category is more about fear of the aversive consequences of eating. And that can be a fear of vomiting if you eat or choking if you eat, which starts to look a little bit more like a specific phobia reaction. Um, But it's usually based off of past experiences where maybe there was an allergy or there's some sort of underlying medical condition. um, And that fear can be related to having an invasive medical procedure because of eating a food that they've had a reaction to as well. So there's an element of a flavor of trauma to that sometimes too. So those are three very different categories, um, but all falling under that same heading. But essentially it all comes down to, are you having trouble eating a variety of foods? And is it really getting in the way of your ability to live your life fully and live your life healthfully? Right. Yeah, those those categories are <clears throat> they're they're they are very broad and I'm cer- I'm certain that someone listening to this could find themselves in a couple of different categories. Oh, just to to that end, when you're working with someone with ARFID, do you find that they fall within one category or do they kind of span a couple or even all three? Interestingly, most of my clients um, tend to fall into one of those categories, and they can have some other co-occurring mental health concerns, but many times they don't. That is just that one thing, and it can be very much specific. There can be some longstanding issues, so I guess I should back up a little bit. ARFID tends to be something that is lifelong. Most people that experience ARFID report experiencing it since birth, since Mm. infancy. And it starts to become more noticeable, often for many people around the time that they have to transition onto solid foods. And then they start rejecting certain solid foods. And then there can be this kind of reinforcing cycle where if you don't try very many things, your palate might develop in a certain way, or you might develop a more extreme aversion. And so it can be very cyclical where because you don't eat very many things, it's harder to eat more things. And if you don't like stuff, you might not be eating throughout the day. So you might not actually have hunger cues. You might not want food. So there are ways that it can bleed into the different categories, but very often people have a real primary issue with one of those three categories. In my experience, that's not necessarily a research-based answer so much as an anecdotal answer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> how how does this tend to develop? So how how do you first start to see these these symptoms showing up and um and it and you kind of said it can show up as early as childhood or even infancy. But uh, I guess where where do you first start to see it showing up and how does it typically develop? Yeah. That's a great question. Um so as a caveat, I tend to treat people who are actually teens and adults with a mixture of kids in there, which is a little bit different. Many ARFID specialists are more in the kid domain and work with parents, or you'll find them in feeding clinics for very young infants that are, for instance, not switching to solid foods. Um, But typically, you start to see it showing up around that time period where infants have to transition onto solid foods, and you start to see the rejection there, the difficulties there, or they start showing, if you're in that that domain of like fear of a medical consequence, you might start to see some allergies that then lead to restricting or refusing certain foods. Um, But then there's a degree of normalcy of picky eating, 
many people refer to ARFID as extreme picky eating. And so it's a little bit more than that. Obviously, it's a lot more restrictive. But there's a degree of normative development where most kids are pretty picky. Most kids really would prefer to eat chicken nuggets rather than broccoli. And that's not unusual. And that's but to be you fair start for to everybody. see it. Yeah. And so it starts to be, yeah, I mean, adults as well. But there's a difference between and then the point where it starts to really impair physical development and emotional functioning. Um, so when you're starting to get into, for instance, less than 10 foods is often the magic number touted by researchers. Mm. If you don't eat more than 10 different foods and you have a real extreme reaction or disgust or fear or distress around even thinking about eating other foods, you're probably falling more into the ARFID category. And so around ages two to six or so, that middle childhood period, it's considered relatively normative to reject certain foods. But if it's getting more extreme and you're not seeing like growth or developmental milestones being met, and then once you get past that age six window and it's still really tricky, you might be seeing more of that ARFID diagnosis. Okay, I I, I I appreciate that that greater detail of it. I didn't intend this, but um, I, I'm in the middle of this all of a sudden going like because I I have I have a couple of kids and they are um, they're going to be two and going to be five and they're and, and I'm in my head going, gosh, they don't like to try to eat other different foods. So I, you know I'm thinking as as you know with my parent hat on, you know I there there is going to be that typical ex- expected food kind of rejection that, you know, not wanting to eat certain foods, only wanting to eat chicken nuggets and French fries. And, you know, that sounds delightful. Um, but, you know, seeing that, seeing that difference of when it starts to escalate or it starts to, you know, become more restrictive or I love the acknowledgement that, you know, if, if there's missing some developmental milestones, perhaps it is related to their dietary um, restrictions. Yes, yes. And that that missing developmental milestones or not getting adequate nutrition tends to be the main thing that identifies kids early on of this is something that needs some intervention. And even if someone is not necessarily fully meeting criteria for ARFID in a clinical sense, they can still benefit from a lot of the different interventions that tend to be helpful for targeting ARFID. And a lot of those tools are actually tools that many parents use anyway to get their kids to try new things. Like there's a tool called chaining where you chain something that is preferred with something that is not preferred. And essentially you're trying to practice having a little bit of the thing you don't like with the thing you do like and slowly changing the amounts so that over time you're eating more of the thing you don't like and less of the thing you do like and that's a classic way to introduce broccoli to kids by putting cheese on it that is just what most parents do and over time you try to get rid of the cheese and just eat the broccoli so a lot of those strategies are things people use with children anyway so there is a degree of normalcy it's just how impairing is it right right i guess could you tell a little bit could you tell us a little bit about the clients that you tend to see and what are some of the common themes or common things that that you're seeing and 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 helping them work through absolutely um i think something that starts to come up that really differentiates that normal range of being picky or having preferences and getting into the arfid spectrum yeah. is there is often a really intense 
disgust reaction to food. So foods that are outside of the preference or outside of the the rules that someone with ARFID might have developed for themselves um, tend to really elicit a very strong reaction. So I have clients, adult clients, where we'll practice just tolerating disgust. Um, and a lot of the exposure practice that we do is intended to practice tolerating feelings of disgust, not necessarily learning to love lots of things mm-hmm. so that people can be able to be able to eat. Essentially, that is the underlying theme. Someone with ARFID often struggles to be able to eat. So I'll have clients where we'll practice biting into grapes or biting into beans because that bursting sensation is really disgusting. And you'll see it on their face where they'll bite into it and everything in them wants to spit the food out. Uh, It is absolutely, truly disgusting. And so... That's that's more the range of where I'm seeing clients who are absolutely, truly disgusted, or they'll engage in a lot of checking behaviors and ritualistic behaviors around food to make sure it's right. So a lot of clients that I treat, especially adults who have been living with ARFID most of their lives, if not all of their lives, will have developed a lot of unconscious rituals where they'll inspect, they'll pick up their food and they'll look at it and they'll inspect it and they'll see how soggy is it, how crisp is it are the edges the way I like the edges before they put it in their mouth. Mm -hmm. And so we'll do a lot of work around disrupting those kinds of just right rituals and practice tolerating the possibility that that food might be disgusting or it might not be right. And we're going to lean into that and learn how to eat it even when it's not right so that you can do things like go on a date or go to summer camp. Um, So the clients that I see mostly fall into that category of being very preferential and having a strong disgust reaction. Mm -hmm. But I also work with clients that find food just not interesting at all. And so that will be more in the domain of working to build hunger cues because a lot of them don't get hungry and they're underweight because they're not eating enough. Um, So that'll be more in the domain of how can we practice just feeling full and practice eating when you're not hungry and eating on a schedule so your body can start to anticipate food. Mm -hmm. But then we also have that category that's more in that phobia. So I also treat clients that have had really negative experiences, usually because of an allergy or because of a medical condition where like they'll have, this is more children that I work with. They'll have some sort of like acid reflux or something like that, that gets triggered by certain foods. Mm -hmm. So they've gotten afraid of eating foods. So that'll be more in the domain of let's practice eating and testing out what happens and learn to tolerate or maybe retrain that gag reflex or sit with the uncertainty and deal with the consequences if something negative does happen, but maybe it won't always happen. So we're taking some risks. So those are, those are some examples of the the kinds of things I'm doing with clients. Right. That, that um, I've worked with a couple of clients with RFID in the past and that, that, that disgust element of it is at least in the clients that I saw, it's so prevalent um, yeah. and it's like everything in them just says that this is awful and terrible and the worst possible thing could ever happen. And there's, it defies logic. I can imagine a lot of people out there saying it's, you know, try to explain, Hey, why won't you eat, why won't you eat beans? They're just beans. Who cares? They're beans. It's, yeah. it's, it, it is beyond explaining. It's not like, I don't like the flavor. Some people don't like broccoli because they have the gene that, you know, cr- makes it so that it tastes bad. I guess Brussels sprouts yeah. are the same, right? Um, <laughs> Yeah. It, it, so, but th- it's different than that. It is an an inexplicable, just aversion to it. 
That- yeah, and there's well, there. I'm glad you brought that up because there is some research that suggests that people with ARFID may actually have a different structure and a different. Um, there's some differences in hormone levels in terms of the way they're experiencing satiation. Some people with ARFID, not all, okay. but there's also some suggestion that some people with ARFID, especially that disgust category, mm-hmm. might be super tasters where they might have a higher concentration of, this is really outside of my window of expertise, but they might have a higher concentration of essentially like, I want to say taste buds. I don't know if that is the real way it's described, but they taste flavors more intensely and they may taste certain foods as more disgusting because there is something going on in the way they're built neurologically or in terms of sensory processing. So I also want, when I work with clients, I want them to be realistic about we're not necessarily going to love lots of foods because this might just be kind of how you're built, but different things that you've been doing might be reinforcing some of the preferences, some of the aversion. And by practicing often many of the clients that I work with learn to be able to eat a lot more foods more freely and they're less disgusted by them. That, that is fantastic. I mean, it's, it's, I, I think that's a really important element here to recognize for someone maybe struggling with this and wanting to then get, you know, be able to go and have the freedom that, you know, some, the, the, the other person has to be able to go out and eat and eat certain things, et cetera. Um, the, the goals of therapy, the goals of treatment might be different from what they are currently expecting, right? Um, you know, yes. we have clients come in for OCD or, or, you know, phobias and they'll say, you know, I, I want to be rid of this anxiety. Well, we're not here to get rid of a feeling and disgust yeah. is one of those feelings that we have inside out taught us this. So it's that yes. we have one of, we have those feelings. It's not about that. We get it, but it's, can you do it even though, can you do it despite yes. the fact that you have this reaction? And I guess, could, could you speak a little bit to the, to the goals of treatment for someone who's listening to this going, man, I'm, I'm sick of this pattern that I've fallen into or I've, I've developed over the course of my years. Um, what, what, what goals are realistic for someone going through this process? Yeah, usually we try to look at three main broader goals. One is to learn how to tolerate disgust. Usually I'm saying disgust because most clients have difficulties with disgust. Sometimes it's disinterest. Sometimes it is fear and avoidance. There's a lot of avoidance in all of this, but really we're learning to handle that feeling that makes them want to avoid the food so that we can practice eating even when you have that feeling. And that helps reach broader goals, which I try to highlight as maybe more important as loving lots of foods and more, we want to get adequate nutrition so that you can be physically healthy and we want to be able to go places and do things. Those are two huge limitations for Mm. many people. And especially when we get into adults who are able to, they've lived that life for a long time and they're able to say, okay, yeah, those are my goals. Kids, it's a little trickier because they're a little more immediate gratification. They're like, why on earth would I do this thing if I hate it? So that gets more into the parent focused side of things where parents have to learn different tools for, okay, what am I reinforcing versus what do I want to stop reinforcing when it comes to food avoidance? So that's a whole other ball of wax. But when it comes to people that have higher order thought processes and delayed gratification, we try to focus on how will this add to your life if you can get through this moment and be able to live for more moments, bigger moments that mean more. So that's where we get into that idea of a lot of people I work with 
are pretty isolated. They're afraid to go <coughs> to parties. Mm -hmm. They're afraid to go on social experiences because they're not sure if they'll be able to eat or if it will be embarrassing or if they'll be hungry and upset and, you know, socially feel strange trying to order chicken fingers when everybody else is ordering steak at a nice restaurant. And so people's lives get very limited in that way. So we try to work towards that. Um, there's another piece on the nutritional side of things, which is there tends to be this idea of someone with ARFID being underweight. And often that is how it's described with children, like failure to meet goals and, and growth curves. But many of the clients that I work with are actually also overweight. There's kind of two ends of the spectrum mm. because you're you're thinking about somebody that's got a limited diet that's often junk food because very often people with ARFID prefer things that are higher in fat, higher in sugar, because that's tastier and that's more comforting. Um, sometimes I've worked with people that have the opposite where they'll only eat vegetables and they won't eat things like you know, chips and fries and chicken nuggets. Um, but if you're having a diet like that's high in carbs and high in fat, often you're seeing different nutritional issues where you're having high cholesterol and other, you know, pre-diabetic, those kinds of health issues that have to do with that kind of diet. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of two ends of the, the health spectrum there. Is there is there a difference in, in in the treatment or the way that those are approached, or is it all just kind of in a, a values based decision to change diet and to incorporate things that you just don't really like, but you're doing them anyways because it's important. Yeah, the goals tend to be the same, and I am very client centered. I want to meet the goals of the client. So yeah. if the client doesn't feel like weight is a concern for them, then we're not talking about you know, weight and body image. But sometimes I, I, so my, just to kind of back up a little bit, my background um, before working in anxiety disorders and obsessive compulsive disorders, which is primarily the space that I operate in now, I started off in intensive outpatient eating disorder treatment. Mm. So I also work with people on the more widely known eating disorders like you know, bulimia and anorexia, um, especially when you get into that space of overlapping with OCD and eating disorder behavior, um, which comes up a lot in the anorexia space. So mm -hmm. people will get very stuck on certain rituals and calorie counting and weighing themselves that can get very um, into the perfectionistic obsessive compulsive space. Um, but so when I do work with clients, I want to honor if there are other eating disorder concerns beyond just the ARFID, because sometimes people can have more than one thing. So I have people with ARFID who also struggle with binge eating disorder and body image concerns and body dysmorphia. And some of that can be related to their history of issues with diet and some of the messages they've received around what they should be doing, how they should be approaching and experiencing the world. Um, and in that case, I want to make sure I'm addressing all of their primary goals beyond just, okay, what does your health look like? And thinking about how those messages around focusing on something like health as related to being overweight could negatively impact their sense of self-worth and contingencies of self-worth. So it's a little bit of both and in that that respect. Right. I can imagine it, it gets to be a little tricky to start to separate those and w which behaviors are related to which disorder and then trying to develop a, pa uh, a, a a treatment plan to address both of those simultaneously. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> could you, is, is there, is there an overlap between ARFID and orthorexia? That 
is an interesting question. Typically, orthorexia tends to fall more in that anorexia nervosa space. Mm-hmm. Um, so, one of the main distinguishing features between ARFID and some of the other more widely known eating disorders like anorexia and bulimia um, is anorexia and bulimia tend to be very, one of the main criteria is an undue focus on weight or body shape. Um, And orthorexia, which is not necessarily a formal diagnosis, but it is kind of an other specified eating disorder diagnosis, it tends to fall into that category of typically some of it is motivated or driven by a desire to control weight and body shape, but in the space of under the guise of being healthy. Mm -hmm. And there's an undue concern on exercise and being healthy and potentially, you know, more in, it can get a little bit into the muscle dysmorphia and body dysmorphia space, but there does tend to be a focus on image. Whereas with ARFID, there tends to be very little concern about body image and weight. Um, It's more about like the functional impairment that not being able to eat plays a role in their life but there's very i have not met many clients that really seem to care a whole lot about their exercise and um being hyper focused on that which is more in that orthorexia space i hope that was clarifying it got a little muddy in there (laughs) it it it, it totally works i think i mean because they're you know, I, I, I think that, you know, for someone who may be finding this podcast who, you know, they may have a loved one who may be experiencing them or they have it themselves and they've heard all these different terms. I mean, in in the world of, you know, anxiety land, things can get in therapy land. There there are way too many acronyms, way too many big words and things that are just wildly confusing. But I think it's, it's helpful to pull those apart so it doesn't feel like someone is just acquiring all these big stinking names um, that point to why they're broken. But it's you know that yeah. that they can be they they can find a home in a direction rather than it's just feeling like well they have all the things but I, but I appreciate that that differentiation with uh, with orth- orthorexia because there can you know somewhat be that that overlap anyways I don't want to keep uh, belaboring yeah. that point yeah you did you, well you, and you I done think- good. <laughs> Thank you. I think something just like a really very baseline summary of ARFID compared to the other eating disorders is that ARFID people are not eating because they feel like they can't, not because they don't want to eat or they're trying to control something. That's, that's perfect. And yeah, there's that, there's that limitation. I, I anticipate there's a lot of, or is there, you can tell me, is there an overlap then between, between ARFID and depression? And or what are some uh, what are some other comorbids that you might see? Obviously, we've talked a little bit about the traditional eating disorders, but in, in what other um, comorbids might you see? And I don't know what the statistics would be, which is a really interesting question. But in terms of my personal experience with clients, there's a lot of sadness and distress and isolation associated with the ways ARFID interferes with their ability to live a full life. So in terms of being able to go out with friends and do things and not have to worry about what you'll eat or how you'll eat or what it's like, it's it's very... It limits freedom. And so one of the ways that I like to approach treatment with my clients is by eating stuff that feels disgusting and working through that feeling. Mm -hmm. That means you can eat anything anywhere and that's freedom. Mm -hmm. That gives you your life back. So while ARFID itself is not necessarily 
a direct link to depression, it can certainly lead to certain limitations that can interfere with the ability to feel good and satisfied with life. There is on a a biological level, another piece of that, which is there's a side effect of malnourishment, Mm -hmm. a side effect of being very low weight. Um, And this happens with anorexia. This happens with people that just don't have access to food, for instance, you know, victims of war and famine, Um, but also in the ARFID space where if you are very low weight, you tend to be anhedonic, which means there's limited reactivity, low experience of emotions, um, limited pleasure. So it's kind of like this flatness Mm. that can feel kind of depressing, but you also don't really care that you're depressed, but you do. So it can be very hard to do something about it because you just don't have the energy to have those emotions when you're that low weight. And it's actually protective. It's your body's way of keeping you alive because if you're freaking out, you're not going to be able to to get through whatever crisis you're in that's leading you to not have enough food. And you're expending a lot of calories to freak out. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. That is the clinical term. <laughs> well, I, I guess, t- so ultimately, I think the most important thing with all of this is going to be um, the, the treatment of this and how, how somebody can work their way through this. You know, we, we've, you've kind of alluded to the differences between, you know, how, how this might show up or treatment might show up for kids versus adults. Um, but I guess, t- tell us, I mean, your, your, your main focus is, you know, te- teens and adults, teens and up. Tell me a little bit about what treatment would look like for them and what someone out there who may be listening to this, who, who wants to get started, but may have trouble accessing treatment for whatever reason. What, what is the course of treatment going to look like for someone struggling with, um, struggling with ARFID? Yeah, I I tend to take a cognitive behavioral approach um, and use of evidence-based practices that tend to, there's some research that shows that it is very effective for ARFID. Um, There's very preliminary research, um, but but also borrowing from principles of ACT where we're learning to accept certain elements of the situation and be able to work through it without getting too stuck on stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially what we try to do is look at how we're thinking about situations, what are the beliefs about that situation, and how can we practice testing it out and learning to handle that potential worst case scenario, but also maybe collect new data about how it will go. Maybe it will be disgusting, but maybe we can handle disgust. Disgust is not necessarily dangerous. It is a primary emotion, and it is intended to tell us important information about our environment, just like anxiety. Anxiety is intended to help keep us alive. But when we have anxiety disorders, sometimes it's getting a little too far to the right, and we got to get it back to the middle. Same with disgust. Disgust is intended to tell us, hey, that food is poison. You definitely shouldn't eat that because you're going to die. And we want to practice engaging with the food to test out that belief. You know, so far, my patients haven't died from trying the foods I've given them. Sometimes if somebody does have it, this is my caveat. Not yet. They could. We're sitting with the uncertainty of that. If somebody has a history of allergies and they have a restricted diet, then there is that caveat of you should probably try food for the first time under the supervision of your doctor to see if you actually have an allergic reaction. Because if you haven't tried a lot of things, you truly might be allergic to certain things. So if there's like a family history or a possible personal history, that's that's my one caveat to the, hey, if you eat this, you probably won't die. Like you could. could. We're, we're going to lean into that. Yeah. But for the most part, what we're doing is practicing doing experiments, 
doing exposures and practicing tolerating that sensation. And I like to do things in a progressive stepwise fashion Mm -hmm. where people can learn, okay, I can approach this thing a little bit. Let's take one further step and then another step from there rather than just saying, okay, eat this hamburger. Let's do it. Um, So usually I will start off with um, something that engages the five senses. Mm -hmm. That seems to be a very simple, straightforward approach that people can use. And I do this with kids. I do this with adults where we'll practice just being around the food and identifying, Mm. okay, what are your rituals? What are your core fears? What is the thing you struggle with? How can we approach that in a certain way? So if it's about certain foods touching each other, like let's have that fear food on the plate and we're just going to have it there. We're going to practice having that normalized that it's a part of dinner. It's a part of your meals. Let's bring it in. It's just around. And then then from there, we try to take a step further. We're going to touch it. We're going to play with it. Okay, now we're going to smell it. And we're going to take a bite and spit it out. And then we're going to take a bite and hold it in your mouth for five seconds. And then we're going to spit it out. And then we're going to take a bite and chew it and spit it out. Mm -hmm. Until we're working our way up to actually swallowing the food. And most people, when they come into my office, especially kids, kids like to come in, they don't have any anxiety about bossing me around. And they come in and they're like, I'm not eating that. Just so you know, like, I'm not eating that. And I'm like, cool, you're in charge. You don't have to eat it. But what if we like, just hold it? Could you hold it? And they're like, no, okay. They're usually more willing to do that. So we're just trying to, to do one step at a time and introduce the possibility of like, okay, maybe you can handle this if we do it incrementally. Mm. But I also really try to focus on giving my clients power and a sense of control where we are doing something that is scary or upsetting or disgusting. And we're going to do it, but you have say in how we're going to do it. And you can always say no. (laughs) I don't want my clients to be forced to do anything because that's not necessarily helpful. And especially with kids, I usually really try to respect when they say no because they're not used to that. And then they trust me that I will listen to them if they say something is too much. Um, So that's important. But I try to encourage them to take steps outside of their comfort zone. And when it comes to kids, reward can be really, really valuable in getting them to step outside of their comfort zone. Um, But really doing the exposure practice of how can we go towards this thing you want to avoid? Right. Oh, man, I love all of that. People couldn't see me um, fist pumping when she was describing all this. (laughs) I mean, I... I, I assume in in this process that you're describing that you know that process of going from I'm 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 not eating that dumb food to sure I'll have it in my mouth and I'll chew and swallow it. This is not one session. This is over the course of numerous sessions. Un- uh, unless you're a, ex- oh, go ahead. It depends. I have, I'm looking to my right because I have a, a little game here. Okay. Um, and I'll do games with people, teens and adults, you know, it depends on how much they want to play a game because sure. <laughs> they, I don't want to like make them feel too young, but I love games <laughs> even with adults. But with kids, I have a game where um, we will work our way up that stepladder. Usually we'll try to get to it by the end of the session. So the one that I have here was for a kid and I'm just going to pull it up sure. so I can look at it. Um, but 
we have a beautiful stepwise uh, description of step one is hold the food, play with it. Step two is smell the food. Step three is lick the food. Step four is take a bite and spit it out. Five is take a bite, hold it in your mouth for five seconds and spit it out. Six is take a bite, chew it for 10 seconds and spit it out. And then seven is take a bite and swallow it. But part of this is each of those steps is worth more points. And then they have a specific prize that they want to get by the end of the session. And sometimes it's something that I have for them. Sometimes it's something their parents have planned for them. And so if they can get that point value, like they'll get something no matter how many points they get. So it's not just like you either succeed Succeed or you fail. fail. But if there's something they really want, then they'll get to the end of that step ladder mm-hmm. and they'll see, they'll see that they can get there and then they get that thing that they want. I love that. What, how do you, how do you, how do you work that with, with a, uh, so, all right, so I, to step back. So that process that I would assume would take multiple sessions, this could very much be done in one session, but you know, is there, cause I imagine there are going to be some parents who are going to say, this kid's got to eat some broccoli. Um, <laughs> should they, ex- what expectations or do you have on that or how do you temper expectations for, you know, I'm, I'm thinking especially parents or loved ones who are like, you know, we're sick and tired of their limitations. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it depends on the kid and it depends on how reward motivated they are when we're talking about kids. But a big piece of this, both with kids and adults, same as any treatment for an OCD or anxiety disorder, is that you have to practice. Mm-hmm. The people that do not practice tend to take a very long time to make progress. Mm-hmm. So a lot of my adults take much longer than the kids because the adults don't want to practice between sessions. They're, they'll practice in session. I consider myself like a, a professional peer pressurer, <laughs> but they it's very hard for them to go towards practices between sessions because they don't want to, and it's disgusting. So we try to find ways of motivating them or setting up a schedule. Um, but often that scheduling piece is a big part of it. So often, regardless of whether there's disgust or whether there's difficulties with just liking food in general, a big piece is starting off with building hunger cues and restricting access to the easy foods. So you want to have the foods that are harder to eat around and maybe make it keep less of the stuff or restrict access if you're a parent, like don't just have chips laying around for your kids to eat instead of eating their dinner so that you're building up hunger. And not everyone will eat when they get hungry when they have ARFID. So I do want to have that caveat of I'm seeing people who are medically stable on an outpatient basis. There is a subset of people with ARFID that no matter how hungry they get, they will not eat. And they tend to be more on the medical side and need things like a feeding tube and stuff like that. Um, So that is something that can happen with ARFID. But in terms of making progress, doing a practice every single day, eating on a schedule so that your body can start to anticipate when it's going to eat so it can get hungry for Mm. it, restricting access to the preferred foods between meals so that you're not just snacking on stuff and then not getting hungry enough to try the disgusting food, eating the disgusting food with preferred foods. So you're pairing them together, you're chaining them together. Mm -hmm. So you get that aversive with the desired and they're together. Um, But also doing the challenges at mealtimes can be very helpful because then you're normalizing that we eat foods we don't want to eat at meals. It's not just this special exposure practice piece, which is an exposure for those who don't know is a 
a planned practice where you have a set beginning and end, you know what you're practicing. But we want to normalize bringing in foods that are avoided into meal spaces where they are typically eating. So it doesn't become a special thing. It's like, okay, this is what I do. I try hard stuff during my meals. Right. And if they're a kid, really, really reward them for their practice. Setting up a point system and they can earn points. And if they don't do the challenge, then they might not get the prize, but you're not punishing them for it. Mm. So that's also important too. Right. What's the role of like, you know, uh, for forceful battles between kids and parents in the development of this, like, you know, parents forcing them to try, forcing a kid to try to eat broccoli or, you know, whatever weird food it is for them. I know we're picking on broccoli a lot today, but whatever, (laughs) whatever that thing is that you just don't like, what, what, what role does that play in the development of the, of, of ARFID? Does that make sense? That is, yeah. And that is super tricky because we are towing a line. Um, One way of looking at it is we want to reinforce the behavior we want to see, and we want to stop reinforcing the behavior we don't want to see. So something that can happen with kids is when they avoid a certain food and then you introduce it, they'll get really upset. They'll have a temper tantrum. um, And that's really hard as Mm -hmm. a parent to, to sit through and just deal with and take every single time. But sometimes depending on how you're responding to it, you might be giving attention when a kid is refusing food. And so we want to notice, are we providing them with some kind of unanticipated reward for having a negative behavior? It's kind of parallel to if your kid has a full-blown tantrum at the grocery store because you won't let them buy, you know, a chocolate bar or whatever, and you give them that chocolate bar, what you are sending that message is, oh, this is a good way to get a chocolate bar in the future. And so we want to be careful that we're not reinforcing tantruming and negative behavior. And sometimes just even being selective about attention can be a part of that. Um, But it's really tricky. There is something called the Picky Eaters uh, Protocol, which is by some researchers in Philadelphia, um, Catherine Dalsgaard and Jessica Bodie. And they have a really great set of different tools and rules for parents that they've done some research around. Um, Some of it is contingency management. Mm -hmm. So that can be Um, And I don't remember if it's coming from their protocol or there's also a CBT for ARFID workbook that's really great by Jennifer Thomas and Cameron Eddy. Um, And I'm not affiliated with any of these people, but these are some of the only resources that are out there for ARFID and are really great and very parent focused. Um, There's also space for ARFID stuff, too. Those are like the three big people. Um, But contingency management, one of the recommendations is picking something that a kid wants kind of like a reward, and then reducing access to that thing throughout the day so that they only get it if they do the exposure practice. And it's not a punishment, but it is an incentive. So, for instance, screen time is Mm -hmm. usually one that's picked. Um, And so, if you remove access to screen time and their access to that screen time is contingent upon completing an exposure practice, they can choose, like, I don't want to have screen time. That's how much I don't want to eat that food. But choices. if they do, that can be a very big incentive for actually practicing so they can earn that reward. Right. And then I think I lost the question <laughs> there. I went down my own tangential path. That's totally fine. Yeah, it was, it was more of, I mean, that you're, you're kind of getting at, um, you're, answering, you're answering the question plus. So well, well done, check plus. But it's, yeah, it's the idea of like, 
you know, how, how much of like when parents are trying to like force their kid to try something new that, you know, when they engage with that battle, you know, the kid is probably going to be digging their heels in even more and then just shoot and then limiting just based on control and just yeah. this is the one control or one place in their life where they feel like they can absolutely, you know, control what does or does not go in their mouth. And, you know, to whatever degree that, that, contributes to it. So you, you certainly answered that that question. Uh, I, I don't know if you have a hard out at the top of the hour, if you have clients coming up. So uh, I'll, no, I'm good. Oh, yeah. Okay, me too. But um, <laughs> well, also, would you would you be able to send me those uh, some of those resources you talked about? Because I can tag yes. those onto the yeah. episode page at Fearcast Podcast. So folks can go over there and kind of see what those what those are. Um, when we well, is is there anything else that you feel that you'd want to add to kind of give folks a clearer idea about what ARFID is and what treatment looks like or specific things that folks can be thinking about if they are if they are struggling with this, if a loved one is, or even if a clinician out there is working with someone with ARFID, what sort of things should they be wrapping their head around? It's a lot. It's a lot of that think, question. No, I think those are really, really important questions because there's two different pieces um, that really tend to fall to the wayside when it comes to treatment. Mm -hmm. One is trying to even find a treatment provider. And a lot of people with ARFID struggle for years to figure out what they have and who can treat it. Mm -hmm. And often very young children fall into feeding and eating clinics at children's hospitals. But then after that, it kind of dries up a little bit. Um, and so most people start out looking at eating disorder clinics and eating disorder specific treatment because it's an eating disorder. And sometimes that can be incredibly helpful, but sometimes it's not quite hitting the mark because those treatments often focus on some of the different pieces that contribute to an eating disorder, like trauma experiences or undue focus on body image and weight and that emotional side of things that people with ARFID are not necessarily experiencing mm -hmm. um, so that it can be hard for that to be as helpful as exactly what they need. And they don't realize that obsessive compulsive disorder and anxiety disorder focused on treatment providers that do CBT and ERP and ACT can actually be extremely helpful for treating ARFID. And a lot of those providers do that ARFID intervention work, mm -hmm. but it's not as well known. And people that do that work, those clinicians often feel scared of doing ARFID treatment. ARFID treatment is very responsive to a lot of the same treatment interventions that are used for anxiety disorders and obsessive compulsive disorders. So I strongly encourage both patients that are looking for treatment providers to look at that OCD anxiety disorder space for mm -hmm. a treatment provider, but for those treatment providers to consider, hey, you already have those tools. You can apply this with ARFID. It just seems scarier or different because the word eating disorder is in there, Right, but it's very similar. The caveat to that is it can be really, really valuable when you're in the eating disorder space to have a treatment team that includes a a medical provider, so mm -hmm. a primary care physician that can really track, okay, are there any health consequences or medical consequences of this? Because there's often nutritional deficiencies mm -hmm. that go alongside it. So that's important to get that monitored. Um, but then also working with a dietitian because a dietitian can help design a meal plan and say, these are the things you need in order to be healthy. You need to be eating this, you need to be eating this, and this is how many times a day I recommend doing that. And as a mental health provider, that's kind of outside of our expertise. Mm -hmm. We can read books and make some deductions, but getting that that 
specialists on board can be really helpful. And then you can say, see, they said we should be doing this. So that's what we're going to be practicing. And I can see that also certainly providing that structure and the target for what the eating uh, schedule is going to look like based on what their medical need is, rather than just kind of shooting in the dark with what you want to start eating. Absolutely. Yes. So all of this should be tailored to the individual. We're talking really broadly about different themes and different things we can do, but really the individual need is going to be paramount and it's going to differ based off of, you know, what everybody's going through. So it's good to have your own treatment team that can tailor your plan to what you need. Awesome. Yeah. I, I, I think that can certainly be encouraged. I mean, to, to go back to your previous point about saying, you know, if you're looking for somebody check out, you know, instead of just purely eating disorder folks, you know, even checking out the IOCDF and finding a therapist or finding a a, a IOCDF registered therapist can be a good place to start. And, you know, I'll plug them, go over there, put in your zip code, and it'll pop up with a bunch of therapists in your area that can work with you on this stuff. So that can certainly open things up. Absolutely. And Interestingly, like I mentioned at the beginning, I started off in intensive outpatient eating disorder treatment as one of my first uh, clinical experiences. So Mm -hmm. I started off working with eating disorders. That was about 10 years ago. So that was right before ARFID really made it into the DSM. But I don't remember even hearing ARFID being discussed and that has certainly changed. I know a lot of treatment programs, including the one that I worked at now, does treat ARFID and they include it. But I didn't treat ARFID until I started working at a clinic that specialized in OCD and anxiety disorders, because that was the space where they were seeing those clients and doing those interventions. And it's very effective and helpful. Right. Well, I, all, all of this has been super interesting and, and really informative. Is there is there anything else that you'd want to add to, to um, if there, I, I, I often end, is there something that, is there one thing that you'd want to tell someone who's either struggling with this or encouraging someone who is struggling with this? Um, what's the one thing that you'd want to tell them? I would say that there is hope and things can change. And it doesn't mean that you'll magically love lots of different things, but you can absolutely learn to tolerate disgust and work through fear and urges to avoid and be able to live a full life. And it takes some practice and it takes some hard work, but it is absolutely doable. Love it. Love that sense of encouragement. And it's, yeah, it's, it can be hard work, but it's doable if you, if you work it. So absolutely. Awesome. Well, I, I also ask everybody if, if someone's listening to this, this episode and they have a specific question about ARFID or ARFID treatment, um, and they would like you to answer that, or they would like you to discuss this, would you be willing to jump back on in the future and, um, and answer that question? Yes, definitely. I would love to. And I also want to plug very briefly some free videos that I've made on YouTube to try to provide some education about ARFID because a lot of my clients haven't been able to find that information. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to put together some different, you know, brief eight minute videos on these different topics too. So that's out there too. It's called learning about your ARFID. Awesome. And I'll post a link to that as well. And I was going to say th- those videos are great. I did watch some of those and they are very good. So they're, they're, they're concise, they're clear. Um, they're, they're a wealth of information. So thank you so much for putting those up. And, and again, um, Dr. Faye, thank you so much for joining us for today to talk about, um, talk about ARFID. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. This was really cool and interesting, and I'm excited to just contribute to putting any information out there that I can. Absolutely. Well, again, thank you so much and have a great day.
Thanks, you too. All right, you made it through this episode. Thank you so much for making it through. Um, so if you have further questions about ARFID or want to know more about ARFID, go over to fearcastpodcast.com, send me, a, uh, send me a message, and I will get Dr. Faye back on the podcast to answer your questions uh, as they relate to, uh, to ARFID. Um, also, be sure to check out her YouTube series. It's fantastic. She's very informative, uh, as you have clear, have as you heard, very clear uh, and engaging as a uh, as a communicator. So I think that that, that would be a fantastic resource if you uh, want to know more about it. So everybody, thank you so much again. Please remember that the Fearcast is not substitute for psychotherapy. If you need a little bit of help in your recovery, go to fearcastpodcast.com and there's going to be find help click on that and see links there that, that might point in the right direction so until next time everybody take a risk challenge yourself don't take your brain too seriously